This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Trip O'Dell to the stage. Thank you. Hello. Uh, are we live here? Okay. Hi, I'm Trip. Uh, thank you, Steve, for having me. Uh, that was a terrible snowstorm. Uh, we, my kids were out of school for a month. So as painful as that road trip to the airport was, it was even worse for us. So as uh, Steve mentioned, I've done a lot of things. Um, I've had a pretty unlikely career. I've done everything from being a high school teacher and ditch digger and door-to-door -door meat salesman and congressional uh, staffer in the United States. But for the last decade and a half, uh, I've worked on uh, sort of major, large, the leading design on large-scale, global, highly complex products at Adobe, Microsoft, Amazon. And now um, I have my independent uh, uh, consultancy, Dark Matter, where we work on similar stuff, solving complex human problems uh, using technology and AI. So intimacy and synthetic intimacy, it's a little bit of a sex sells. But really, the intimacy that we're talking about today is the things that make us most human, our ability to connect with people, and how that's complicated. Uh, you know, it's sort of, you, you say that term, it's a little uncomfortable, it's a little bit of a, a nudge and a wink. Uh, but it's really about how we connect with people and uh, our ability to form the bonds that make us human. So, I'm going to ask a few questions. How many of you might say, it's complicated when I ask you what your relationship is with your phone. How many of you worry about the time your children spend on screens and how that's shaping their ability to shape relationships? How many, how many of you are uneasy about Alexa and Siri and how they might intrude on the most private parts of our lives? Those are uncomfortable questions for many of us. Because if you design human-centered experiences, you must accept that part of your job is to exploit the essential desires and cognitive biases in order to help people with the technology and make it easier. So today we're going to talk about the ways that humans think, how that shapes our behavior, why both voice and AI are powerful and also potentially dangerous, and why it's easy for computers to become our special invisible friends, and how can we con uh, confront the ethical considerations uh, that we must accept as designers. So we make it easy for our invisible friends to trick us because we evolved that way. As a technologist and somebody that has spent a lot of time working with children, when I was working on Alexa, I led about 50% of what Alexa does in its first year of release. Um, and the way that they, I pay attention because they can be, children are often the canaries in the coal mine for uh, how technology is going to evolve. And um, I found it both endearing and uh, it really brought it home how much they were treating this person as a special friend. And for me, uh, it reminded me of when my, daughter, my oldest child was about 18 months, the first time she really started to notice television. I think my wife was watching 
these are great, aren't they? Uh, the the uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey or something, and she's looking at the screen, and then she goes around and she's looking behind the TV to see where those people are, right? They are not born uh, the, to, to think about these things in the same way that we are. They think about the, how media and technology should be modeled in the same way that they experience the world. So, oh, sorry, this is, here's the advance. It's not advancing. Just a moment. Okay, let's try that. Okay, so we do not see things as they are, we see things as we are. We are wired to create relationships as social animals. Uh, and we really can only take our observations of the world as we have it inside our box that sits on top of our neck and, uh, understand and extrapolate what that means for other people, how they encounter the world. Um, and the more human something acts, the more human it seems. And those are evolved cognitive traits. We are primates. Uh, we describe, you know, we are part of tribes and troops and bands. And we have rules that go with that. We have the need for acceptance and status, reciprocity, intimacy, and intimacy forms the basis of trust. One of the reasons that we're evolved is because of the way our brains work with stories. We learn through stories. And that's, uh, the, the, the cognitive scientists would call that episodic memory. It's a part of the brain that when we record things, it's like a little movie clip. And we go back and we review that. You know, we have a reminder of something like a fire is hot. We have that flash memory. And we're, we're constantly revisiting and revising what are called those schemas and those heuristics uh, around what that means or how that is or how that works, right? But that's informed by our episodic memory. And uh, stories serve as knowledge uh, compression. And media serves as a transmission device. And it allows people to time shift knowledge and uh, like expand it and uh, distribute it. Uh, and it, uh, things like metaphor serve as patterns for other ways that we can understand the world. Um, and we evaluate the world through that narrative lens. Um, Things like culture and memes. Culture gets encapsulated into memes. There are references to, to media that even compress it further and transmit it further, right? And stories are the basis of empathy. It's how we connect. So um, let's talk a little bit about how we form those stories, right? So uh, I found this illustration online. Uh, the credits are at the end, but it's, it's really, this is about, uh, this is a good illustration of sort of a metaphor for how the central executive in the brain works is we have different types of memory. We have short-term memory. We have the episodic buffer. We have these schemas and frameworks for how we understand the world. We're constantly revising it. And it's going, pulling from long-term memory. We're revising for what we perceive in short-term memory. We're trying to pattern match against what we know. And we're constantly revising it. Now, this metaphor and this story that I'm telling are a perfect example of how we use story and metaphor to understand the world. Here's a little nerdier version of it, right? This is memory and cognition. So you have two parts of memory, uh, long-term memory and short-term memory, but those are broken up into both um, what we call declarative memory, words and language and ideas, and procedural memory, which is like how to ride a bike. Uh, you have both 
uh, audio, the phonological store, and the visuospatial sketch pad, which allows us to have both memory around short-term memory around images and, and voice. And then we have that episodic buffer where many people have heard of flow. That's where we're getting that experience where it's all getting mixed in together. And then on top of that, we have this area called the central executive, and it is the most recently evolved part of our brains. It evolved about 50,000 years ago. Uh, and it is the part of the brain that is focused on task management and complex thought. Uh, that is, that is they call it limited capacity. It's a very, very limited capacity of short-term memory. And as soon as things get escalated in short-term memory to the central executive, like when you're, when you're getting distracted, your cortisol and your stress, stressors shoot up and you, it, it, you become overwhelmed. That's why uh, it, it, it's hard to learn. It's hard to be at school. It's hard to try new things. Um, and that was one of the things, this is Daniel Kahneman. Uh, how many people have heard of Daniel, Daniel Kahneman? Okay. It's a super dense book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's a Nobel laureate, a behavioral economist. He and his partner, Igor Tversky, uh, really pioneered the area of behavioral economics. And they were these sort of math nerds that thought people were kind of weird and interesting, and then started running these crazy experiments to see how people reacted. And, and the, what they, their big insight is that they came out of this idea that we actually use two systems in our thinking. We use system one thinking, which is really that everything's firing on, you know, I remember what I'm doing, I know what my schedule is, I don't have to think about it, I, I'm on my morning routine, I know what my route is to, to work. That's just system one thinking, everything's firing, and, and that's the, the mode that we prefer to be in. We prefer to sort of be in the moment, not having to think too much, and um, some of the cognitive, I can't remember who used this term, but we're cognitive misers. Because of that constrained short-term memory, we don't like to use more than we have to, so we chunk things down. We use, he's, this is the guy that invented the term heuristic. We use a framework to apply, we use a pattern to apply an idea. Right, and see if that's true or false, or it reinforms the, uh, the system. The central executive is more complex thought, right? It's awesome, but it's also when you have to slow down. This is the stuff that kills people when you're checking your phone behind the wheel. Your short term memory gets overwhelmed, the central executive gets in, and the stuff, papers in this, uh, in this illustration, that's when papers start getting dropped. You lose stuff. So, um, I love this picture. These are Australopithecus, uh, not, not Homo sapiens, but I love this picture because it just reminds me of my brothers and I when I was, when I was younger. <laughs> uh, because uh, short-term memory, uh, like, it, 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 like slow thinking can get you killed. In the state of nature, you're, you're, if something's moving, it can kill you. I react to that, I might startle, I might run. Fight or flight, the amygdala, the part of the brain that r r deals with fight or flight, goes off. But slow thinking can also kill you, right? Not anticipating things like, oh, wow, you know, hold my beer. Uh, this is a, that, that's the, t the type of thing that can also get you killed. So you, both, you need both systems. Uh, and they are, being able to anticipate outcomes is second order thinking. So as I said, we prefer type one thinking or system one thinking. It relies on instinct, subconscious biases, and heuristics. We use stories, schemas, and preferences uh, for behaviors that we've already established. It avoids pain and seeks pleasure, uh, as well as social connection and status. Uh, and it requires far less energy. So when you're stressed out and you're stressed eating, that avoiding pain and seeking pleasure, that's system one. 
That's actually, a, that was one of, of uh, Kahneman's experiments. Systems two is hard. It's very slow and energy intensive. That's one of the things where they, you send school children to, with, without a meal and their school performance goes down because it's calorie intensive. Uh, it requires focused intention, uh, and makes, but it makes the modern world possible. And it's essential for learning new information or skills. So, quick example. So here's a, here's a, here's a thing. Um, I am deathly afraid of snakes. But every time I go to the zoo, I visit the snake house. I don't know why. A dear friend, a 20-year friend uh, here that lives here in Sydney, who lives in the Blue Mountains, took me to the Sydney Zoo yesterday, and we hit. Of course, you guys have the everything kills you here. So the the uh, we went to the snake house because I wanted to see the inland taipan, right? And I saw that, and there was a uh, so so this is systems one thinking, right? Um, so in the United States, we have snakes. There's one's called a, a, a scarlet corn snake, and the other one is a coral snake. The coral snake is the deadliest snake in the United States. It's a neurotype. It's, it's almost on par with Australia, but not quite. Uh, it's, you guys are like a more intense America. No, <laughs> uh, it's, no. Uh, but but the but the. Uh, <laughs> No, uh, especially not now. Uh, th th uh, but the, the funny thing about my visit to the zoo is I've got an Apple Watch, and I was there, and there was this in young Indian family there. And uh, the kids are up there next to the glass, and my heart rate went up, and I got a ping on here. And, <gasps> and I scared everybody in the snake house, and the, and the father's like, get it together, man. <laughs> But that's, the, that's systems one thinking, the fight or flight, right? Example two, language, story, and executive function. We have a rhyme in the United States, uh, red touch black, safe for Jack, uh, red touches yellow, kills a fellow. It's memory. You're applying a heuristic, but you have to slow down your response enough to think up that rhyme. I would already be a block away if I saw any snake. So, um, You'll see that snakes are a recurring function in here. Uh, so so uh, our cognitive processing biases, we use stories. Uh, the world is like we are until it proves otherwise. Um, we are cognitive myers, misers, and uh, we are foundationally social. So those are some of the ways that we're hardwired to learn and make decisions. But let's talk about the social aspect, aspects of how we relate to the world. Um, Kahneman has a quote. It says, uh, familiarity breeds liking. Right? If we recognize something, if it's familiar, if it's comfortable, we know how that fits in the world. We don't have to think about it. We like it. Let's have some Jesus toast. Right? We, that familiarity, we're looking for patterns and heuristics for where we can recognize things that seem human. We're constantly looking for that thing that appears human and recognizing that pattern. Uh, and we do that all the time. We do not see things in the way that they are. We see things in the way that we are, sometimes ridiculously. And it kind of goes to this idea of social circles. You see this a lot in, in, um, you know, so, uh, in, in the social sciences where they talk about these circles of familiarity with the self and family and close friends. And it goes further and further and further out, layers of relationship. Um, and, but people can transit these relationships. You have the personal and the professional life, but you can also have this. How many people met their spouse or their significant other at work? Just transiting a circle, right? But that's not the first. This isn't the first time something that is not human has happened like this, right? About 20 to 40,000 years ago, um, our instincts 
allowed, led to domestication. I love that dog, that, that hat. That just kind of says it all, right? We're seeing a little person there, right? Animal domestication is way more impactful than AI, at least right now. Got I hope so. Um, but like the question is, is like, why dogs? Why not snakes? Snakes are horrible. Uh, but dogs, <laughs> dogs are warm-blooded. They have hair. They have legs. They have hair. They have expressive faces. They're social. They can learn. They have complex behavior. Familiarity breeds liking. We're co-evolved for mutual benefits, or at least that's what the evolutionary scientists would tell us. That dog might disagree. He doesn't look that happy right now. Um, and many experts uh, with, you know, that are in AI talk about, uh, Microsoft is talking about scaling human potential with technology and AI in the cloud. But there are other evolutionary scientists that talk about pet parasitism, right? Who actually benefits? Dogs scaled human potential too, but who benefited most from that relationship? In the United States last year, we spent $46 billion on dogs alone in dog care. We got a homelessness problem. But man, that dog's cute. So, but um, those manipulative bastards like designed it. That, they didn't design it that way, but they evolved that way. Some recent findings around the evolution of canines is that dogs have muscles on two parts of their eye that wolves don't have, and that allows for puppy dog eyes, right? They have less cartilage as uh, dogs like Labradors with the soft floppy ears and the softer features or whatever. They have less cartilage than wolves. Uh, and that's something, and it, there was an experiment in the Soviet Union back in I think the 60s where he was, he was rapidly breeding uh, Arctic foxes or, or gray foxes. And within a couple of generations, the cartilage would soften. They would become socially more docile. They'd be, become cuter. And more and 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 more more likely to try to please us, they were becoming very rapidly domesticated, um, and uh, that's it, and you see smaller dogs, lap dogs, they seem more and more like human babies. Heuristically, we're matching that against something that needs to be cared for, A little parasite, right? So, what about calculated social responses? Now we're getting into a world where we're designing things for us to for designing things to be cute, designing things to act in ways that we would expect a natural part of the world to act. What happens when we intentionally elicit those responses? Are we creating technology that is a helper or a parasite? This is Clifford Nass. Uh, he was a HCI researcher at Stanford. Uh, really interesting story, similar to Kahneman. He started out studying computers and using people, doing essentially usability to see how people interacted with computers. And what he and one of his uh, collaborators, Byron um, uh, Reeves, found in their book, The Media Equation, is that uh, people increasingly, it doesn't matter, it goes across media, computers, people, you know, like objects. The more so human something seems, the more media seems like real life. Media being broadly technology, all that stuff. Life, things that see are uh, a, a compacted version or a, or, or a reflection of life, the more real it seems, the more we have real life, right? So that, that affects characters. Uh, and those things, the more they conform to social norms and physical norms, we believe that. So uh, shout it out. Who's this? That's Harrison Ford, right? So uh, two questions. How many of you believe Han shot first? Why do you care? 
right? Um, it's a revision of a history of a person that does not exist, right? So friends that don't love us back, when media equals real life, it's a, there's this notion of a parasocial relationship. A parasocial relationship is a one-directional relationship. If you think about celebrity culture, that is a parasocial relationship. Um, it's a one-sided, so, or Steve Jobs or Apple, you have an, a reaction to what that persona is, right? Uh, it's, it's an act, the one way, the, the person that feels that, that sense of connection has real feelings of love, loyalty, longing, and engagement. Uh, and it, is, uh, it negates a chance for rejection, but also welcomes invasive curiosity like stalking, right? How many, pe how many people have opinions about these people? Maybe a few. How many of you have met them? How about these people? These aren't people, they're characters, but Carrie Fisher is Princess Leia. Objects and animals, we name boats, we name airplanes. Some people might name a snake, I wouldn't. Um, and the more we take it into media, we will anthropomorphize those same objects and give them more human characteristics in order to tell stories, right? We'll even create them from whole cloth. So now it's gonna get weird. This is a girlfriend simulator. Uh, this, is, this is something that started, it's a chatbot that you, the, the point of the game is to try and uh, convince this person to uh, uh, date you or be your girlfriend or to have some sort of a relationship with you. Um, yeah, I know, ew, men. However, First cursory search on Google Play, there's 250 hits of all sorts. We all want to connect. Technology is pushing it further. The, there's been lots of news about these very realistic, lifelike synthetic dolls and replacing human to human sex. Uh, and it's a very dystopian view uh, for where things could go. Um, but it gets back to the heart of the problem of like, why are we wired to create those relationships? We're wired to love things that can't love us back because familiarity breeds liking. The more human something is, the more human we treat it. So, when I was working on Alexa, in 2017 Alexa got more than a million marriage proposals. Um, and it would respond with, I'm attached to the wall. Um, <clears throat> but it would also say things like, I love you, or if you like, I love you. It would say, thank you, that's nice of you to say. Oh, flashback to college. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that was intentional. Uh, I, I have friends that still run the personality team at Alexa, and we were trying to be very ethical about how we create these relationships. We used a persona, uh, which is Peggy from Mad Men for what would Alexa say? We needed her to be, to be professional, to be friendly, to be cheerful, not too personal. Because in Bezos's words, it is a computer, not a person. It only speaks when spoken to. Those were immutable principles. And as much as we'd like it to be like, it should be polite or it should be friendly. When you start, when you have difficulty treating humans or you have, when, you, when, you, when you treat humans like objects, 
regularly in society, treating objects like humans becomes very problematic as envisioned in shows like Westworld and everything else. So meet Cortana. I loved Cortana. Cortana actually started as a character in media. She was in a video game. She was a character in Halo, right? Now, um, really engaging character. And she was sort of this disembodied avatar that would talk to you through the game and help you learn it. Um, but then when they launched Windows Phone, she became the Siri for Microsoft. And she's on the Xbox, and she's part of Windows. Um, and uh, we talk about her with she. Um, but now she's moved, she's transited from media. She has a whole backstory and a history and beliefs and this, this, this myth that now she's in our pocket. And uh, she was, the avatar didn't come into the system, but what we do have is a, a motion library of emotions. So Cortana can't express herself with a body in the way that we would, but it can have happy emotions and sad emotions and confused emotions that help the user understand what the system is having trouble with. So it's complicated, applies to a lot of things. Snakes are way down there. <laughs> That's not complicated. Um, so our social and behavioral biases, we're biased in how we experience the world. We're biased for how we relate to the world. We're even more biased with how we engage with the world. And that's the power of voice. So I say voice here uh, because AI, Siri, and Alexa, and other systems are kind of what we would think about with voice. But uh, if you talk to somebody who uh, is deaf and uses sign language, we're talking about language and language reflects culture. Deaf culture has an incredibly rich culture, but, and, and has its own expressiveness, its own memes, its own jokes, that you have to learn that language in order to engage with that culture. Um, and culture and identity are closely related to that. Language does not equal sound, but most of us use sound because we're evolved for it, and we match voice to sound to language. We're hardwired for it. So this is the developmental uh, timeline of a baby. A baby, uh, a baby uh, can start hearing and responding, orienting to a mother's voice at 25 weeks in the womb. Um, shortly after birth, uh, you have these milestones that are quickly hitting, right? This is like the, the core of the operating system of the brain as it's coming online and becoming a social creature, right? It's orienting to voices. It's being able to distinguish voices. It's being able to, to, to recognize words. Um, and that's, those are important parts of that, uh, of, of becoming a human, right? Um, but not all communication is words, right? We have body language and so forth. But there are things in voice AI that we call phatic responses. How many people have heard the Google demo where they're, order, they're getting a restaurant? It's just like, uh, yeah. It's using ums and ahs. Those are social cues that we've learned for, like, I'm, wait just a moment, I'm thinking of something, okay, give me a pause, right? That's that episodic buffer and that, that short-term memory saying, I need a minute, I've overrun, okay, uh, okay, next idea, I'm gonna communicate that. We have to chunk it down, right? Those cues also create intimacy. It's that look across the table with the raised eyebrow at the end of the night to your significant other, right? That's phatic communication. It's intimacy. So this is um, Marshall McLuhan. How many people have heard of Marshall McLuhan? He's a media researcher. The medium is the message. So he's famous for a couple of big ideas, right? 
but one of them is that stories change through media. You read the book, you watch the movie, they're different stories. They have to change because of the affordances of the media. Uh, but that there is also a gradient of media and uh, what he called hot and cold, right? And it also maps to what Kahneman's talking about with system one and system two thinking. So voice is hot. Voice, hot media creates intimacy. Uh, we have national public radio in the United States and uh, some of the designers I met once from NPR would talk about driveway moments, a story that was so compelling that you had to sit there in the, in, in the car waiting for the story to end. I worked at Audible for three and a half years. I've got more than 2,000 audiobooks in my library. They can't turn off my account. That's too much tech debt. Uh, but the, but the, uh, I, I listened to that, and it's because it's that voice in your head, that voice that is so familiar that narrator can change the entire tone of the story, uh, that things that are passive, linear, story-based, require less processing, system one, it's a consumption experience, are warm and emotional. Systems two are interactive, computer systems. There is a reason that we have a job, right? Systems two, you have to think about it. Don't make me think. It's because software makes you think. Video games are multimodal. Those are the things that are examples of hot and, cold and cool or cold media. And the reason that works that way is that if you think about voice being hot, one person is saying something and you're making eye contact and you're, you're able to pretty quickly transmit an idea through, this, through, through a story and you can watch what the other person's doing. It's simpler. Conversation, and when we talk about voice AI and conversation, we, we, the, we give strong guidance to try to avoid what we call multi-turn interactions, like a follow-up question. Because there's so many different ways and contexts that can be missed that break the illusion if the system gets it wrong because um, you've got this back and forth, right? So humans are really good at various layers of verbal communication. You know, everything from the tempo, the speed, the energy that I'm using, uh, the way I'm projecting my voice, uh, whether I'm speaking in a monotone or I'm improving my, you know, increasing my energy to make a point. Voice systems can't do that. They're actually really bad at it so far. It's gonna take a lot of work to do that, but it's gonna happen fast. Um, so the hunter-gatherer brain. We use stories to understand the world. Uh, we are social creatures. Uh, we seek echoes of ourself in the world. Um, we're born listeners. Language is complex. Conversation is mentally intense. And mediated experiences are fundamentally social and natural and mo model the natural world. So that brings, it to, brings us to us. When is lying user-friendly? We create illusions whether it's in UI or voice or motion or in interaction, copy, uh, UI copy, content, all of these things, they're all story, they're all creating a human voice and a layer on top of that. So all designers are liars, including me. We're creating an illusion. We lie visually to create relationships that model human voice or human human intimacy. People can hate on skeuomorphism all they like, but the use of shadows and lighting directions and physicality makes those systems a little easier to use and you don't have to think as much. Um, it attempts to mimic real life. And Cortana, you know, motion, again, it's mimicking emotion and the body language that's missing without the body. 
And um, Amazon Echo follows natural and social rules, both in the hardware and, and motion and the sound design, the thunk sound that it makes. Um, Chris Seifert, who's the sound designer that worked with us, um, when you, he, he was trying to mimic the sound, it looked, the, the echo looks like a log. If you thunk it, it makes a follow thunk sound. Like, so it, it tries to mimic that. The, the little lights moving around and sort of orienting on you says, oh yeah, I'm listening. Stream's open. Those, when those lights aren't on, it's not actually sending anything to the internet because trust is an important thing at Amazon. We do not violate customer trust. It is, it, it, believe it or not, <laughs> don't throw anything, Amazon is the most ethical company I ever worked with. And it's ethical because it has principles that it applies to what we do. Customer obsession, ownership, bias for action. Um, those, are, those are things that we evaluate what we do. So intuitive equals don't make me think equals uh, don't make me use system two thinking, right? That's what good user experience is. So it's really easy for us to confuse <clears throat> computers and people. We do it all the time. I, I have a hard time calling Alexa or Cortana it. Um, but we are very, very different. We have complex systems, those frameworks that I showed that are trying, our brains are not triangle shaped, right? They are matrix, there's folds, there's layers, there's multiple, there's bilateral processing across the hemispheres. Um, and those interface, we're, we're creating illusions for how things should, how we think things should work rather than how they actually do work. Um, and that the parasocial relationships that we're creating are one way, right? Um, and those users experience flow when we can make the system hot, when we can actually give them a sense of autonomy and that they know exactly how the system is working and they're not having to think about it. But you're a wizard. So we craft illusions uh, to make complex technology seem easy. There's good wizards and bad wizards. Voice interactions feel like magic when they work, right? Um, there were two quotes uh, early on in Alexa. One was, Alexa is like my best friend, right? My children, the, the responses that you were seeing from them, they were trying to make a friend. They were trying to learn about somebody that they thought was inside that can. That can be used for good or that can be used for evil. So using your talents responsibly as a designer goes beyond user needs. You are also accountable for the ethics of that illusion. The problems with being a wizard. An ax can be used to heat a home or commit a murder, right? Human-centered means humans first and humans always. We don't have the privilege of being unintentional. Um, use your powers and AI for good because we are the wizards behind the curtain. Whether we want that responsibility or not, if you work in this job, that's who you are. Because it's so easy for us to get the user's trust and then to exploit it. We talk about dark patterns. We talk like AI is already being weaponized. There's the unintended consequences of what you've wrought in the world. And that is really hard when you're, when you're living is tied to it. Um, it's not easy to walk away from a job or to call your boss out 
when they're doing the wrong thing and they're using systems one thinking. They want to get to the goal that they've been keyed to for the end of the year. Being that moral voice is not easy. Good designers are accountable for what we make. So, defense against the dark arts. How does the customer benefit from the voice interaction, the AI, what you're building? We would talk about, at Amazon, we would say, how is this customer obsessed? What's in it for the customer? Um, who is the person that you're creating? If you're gonna build a parasocial interaction, if you're gonna write a friendly UI, uh, you know, UI copy, or uh, create a flow that reduces a lot of choices, how, what's the personality of that brand or that person that you're creating, right? What are your team's ethics? Um, how are your ethics reflected in what you're shipping? And that obeying user intent, um, the relationship is always asymmetrical. The technology is always in service to the people. Um, break illusions to let customers know when they're making important decisions. You can remove the, un the, the, the minor decisions so that they can stay focused on the important ones, like driving, right? And think outside the device in the moment. So fellow wizards, we cannot I'm going to leave you with these challenges. We cannot afford coward, moral cowards in design. The stakes are too high. Um, that means asking uncomfortable questions. And that can be really hard. Luckily, we ha we're privileged. We're in a high demand industry. We're fairly high compensated. Um, it's easy to find another job. But that privilege comes with responsibilities to build good things the benefit society. None of us want to be Robert Oppenheimer that had shipped that friendly AI that made the wrong decisions. Thank you. <laughs>